Welcome back. You are listening to Twisted Ladder. My name is Jeremy, and this is a podcast where I have a conversation with my friend Sam about biology. This week, we're going to be taking a look at what happens when cellular identity goes awry and how that can lead to various disorders, including cancer. But before we do, and because I can't do this on my own, let's bring in Sam. Sam, how are you doing? I'm doing pretty well, Jeremy. How about you? Not too bad. Uh, it's nice to have a week where it's sort of just exciting news in the news. Like, it's basically, it seems like it's mostly been, like, pretty good good shit this week, sort of broadly, right? Like, we had the Mars landing, uh, which was cool as hell. Um, obviously, the biggest news of the week was the announcement of the remaster of Diablo 2, which is... Uh, got me unreasonably excited um that's great yeah good to get excited yeah did you did you ever play that game or did you just sort of i played a little bit probably at your house um but i always found it just kind of felt like you know you were above ground in some sort of like drizzly like graveyard and then you would descend into a dungeon and then you were just in like a dank dungeon for ages and it just it kind of depressed me yeah. honestly like i couldn't get into that part, that one part of that's it that's um the uh, weirdly enough the the lack of de- depressingness was one of the main criticisms of diablo 3 but yeah it's is that right yeah, yeah cuz it's uh, there there is an appeal in the in the bleak as fuckness of it but i i totally buy it honestly the the only like rpg i ever played as a kid like really seriously was by all accounts like a pretty mediocre RPG. I think it was called Dungeon Siege, but it was like it was the opposite aesthetically. Like mm-hmm. it was outside almost all the time, these very like vibrant colorful worlds mm-hmm. and it was like a I think a pretty vanilla like inventory and combat system, but you were just kind of wandering around this epic beautiful world and Welcome I, I back. Really You're listening it. once again it's gonna to be Twisted cool Ladder. My name's Jeremy and this is the podcast where I have a conversation like, with my friend Sam I'm an about old biology. Person. Like I'm a This week really we're going to be going person. over the question and of I'm what it is that happens when games. cellular identity like, gets disrupted. What are the kids going to be and into? how that can lead towards They'll probably all have disorders including cancer. <laughs> but, uh, before we get into that, since I anyway, can't Sam, do what the this fuck are we talking about? Let's bring not, in Sam. Sam, how robots, you doing? I don't think. Uh, let me scan the outline. Nope, no sex robots. Um, today we're kind of picking back up this main thread of thinking about differential patterns of cellular identity, and as you pointed out at the, at the top there, um, what happens when cellular identity is disrupted. So a uh, quick recap of the episodes. In episode one, we talked about the basics of genomic structure. In episode two, we zoomed in on this phrase gene expression, and in particular, the central dogma, which is that process of getting RNA from a DNA template, and then functional proteins from RNA, and then proteins in this simplified sort of streamlined schema. Um, Proteins do the work of the cell. And then in the previous episode, episode three, we talked a little bit more about the regulation of gene expression. And in the course of talking about that, thought about the way that gene expression facilitates different patterns of gene expression in different cell types and really pointed to that as the answer to this animating question. It's those differential patterns of gene expression in different cell types that confer individual cellular identity. So basically we've built up what happens when everything goes right, in other words. Exactly, yes. And so today, as you nicely set up there, in the final episode in the arc, we're going to sort of extend this paradigm of cellular identity uh, in the direction of what happens when cellular identity 
goes wrong when it's disrupted, and in particular, how certain instances of cell identity disruption drive cancer progression. Mm. And so to get that discussion started, I want to harken back to uh, an example from the previous episode, which is uh, a sort of simplified vision of uh, a, a, any random muscle cell and a particular protein in, in this sort of hypothetical example, a protein responsible for ion transport across membranes. So that protein performs an essential function that makes a muscle cell a muscle cell. And in thinking about it right now, I want to go backwards in that central dogma flow from the protein itself. That protein was translated from an RNA molecule. The RNA molecule was transcribed from a sequence of DNA, in particular, the gene, the gene encoding that protein, okay? And that gene, if, if you recall, is a particular location in the cell's genome, a particular stretch of DNA bases encoding the ion transport protein. Okay. okay. So that's the central dogma, uh, just a quick sort of detailed um, uh, recap of what we talked about. And now I want to think about that same process of translation and transcription, uh, zeroing in on a different cell type and a different gene. All right. So now we're going to be imagining a single skin cell. Uh, and in this skin cell, somewhere in its enormous genome, there's a gene for a protein that is responsible for, let's say, uh, attaching to neighboring skin cells, all right? And I'm going to call this gene and this protein sticky one because it's sticking to other other cells. And and I'm assuming this is this is simplified a little bit. In, in reality, there's probably a series of uh, of genes that all work together to perform this function. But for the purposes, we're, we're pretending it's one. A absolutely. Exactly right. So right now we're really focused on the DNA, okay? We're going to zoom in on one specific part of this DNA gene and that is a triplet of DNA bases that goes GCC, okay? It's guanine, cytosine, cytosine. That GCC DNA triplet is transcribed in the first stage of the central dogma into a GCC RNA triplet. And then in the second stage of the central dogma, that GCC RNA triplet is translated into an alanine amino acid. And that alanine amino acid is one of many amino acids in the mature polymer of the sticky one protein. And that particular alanine amino acid is in part essential for the proper 3D folding of the protein. Okay. And so having belabored that, that sort of chain of events, I want to really highlight and emphasize, you can draw a line from the DNA sequence, that sequence of DNA bases to the proper three-dimensional folding of the protein. This is just a recap real quick, super important because as we pointed out in the previous episode, it's not just the sequence in the protein that's important. It's that proper 3D folding is essential to it doing its job. Exactly. Yes. And certainly there's a, a you know a real connection between that sequence of, of amino acids, as I'll highlight momentarily, but ultimately it's that three-dimensional sh shape that is primarily responsible or at least, you know, deeply responsible for the ultimate function of the protein. So now we've built up this sort of, you know, specific system of everything going properly, going smoothly. Now I want to imagine a problem happens. Something happens to that sticky one gene. Let's say it is hit with a single photon of light. All right, that photon of light 
penetrates into the cell, into the nucleus. It zaps that sequence of two cytosine bases in our GCC triplet that I've been talking about. And as soon as that CC, that cytosine-cytosine doublet, is hit by UV, that UV ray, that photon of light, some chemistry happens that is not super important for, for today's episode. And that CC gets converted into a TT, a thymine-thymine. Okay, so if you recall, as I just mentioned, those CCs are in an important part of the gene. It's a DNA GCC triplet that gets transcribed into an RNA GCC triplet, which gets translated into an alanine amino acid. And that alanine is important for that 3D folding of the protein and therefore its function. Now that DNA has mutated. Now instead of a CC, there's a TT doublet. All right, so in this exact position, instead of a GCC triplet that ultimately gives rise to an alanine in this sticky one protein, now we have a GTT triplet that's ultimately going to give rise to a valine amino acid. And because this position is really important for the 3D folding of the protein, having that valine there instead of the original alanine in that exact spot completely messes up how the protein folds. And... If the protein doesn't fold correctly, that incorrect 3D shape makes it unable to do its normal function, as you highlighted moments ago. Okay, so now in this one particular cell, this was a singular event in one specific skin cell in this hypothetical human, that two nucleotide change that came about because of that single photon of light, it's a two nucleotide change in the DNA sequence of the gene, which caused a the production of RNA molecules with a two-nucleotide change, which in turn caused the production of proteins with a single incorrect amino acid, that protein is incorrectly folded, and it cannot function. Hmm. So we've gone from this really small change in the DNA sequence of just two DNA bases in one tiny corner of this enormous two-meter-long genome in one cell, and suddenly we have a, a skin cell that isn't really acting like a skin cell anymore. A change that starts off as a little tiny thing, you know, an, an atom gets moved around in a, in a strand of DNA or something can then sort of amplify and have much larger effects that impact a whole cell, which is obviously more than just a handful of atoms. There's almost sort of an expansion of of significance, mm. depending on the exact sort of nature, location, timing of that mutation. All right. And to sort of take that chain of reasoning one step further, it can even go so far as to have a consequence for the organism as a whole. All right. And that's really where we're going to spend the rest of today's episode and discussion is focusing on the ways in which this same mutational disruption of cellular identity can give rise to cancer, all right? And so to develop that idea, I want to shift to another sort of slightly hypothetical, streamlined cellular system. Now I want to consider lung cells, all right? So to get at this conversation about cancer and the link between misregulated cellular identity and cancer progression, there's one sort of general category of cellular identity I want to introduce, um, and that is whether or not to divide. All right, so this previous example we just went through, we were talking about a mutation in this sticky one gene that encodes a protein that's important to cell-cell adhesion. So cell-cell adhesion is an important part of a skin cell's identity. In addition, 
for that skin cell and virtually every cell type in a multicellular organism's body, one part of that cellular identity is whether or not the cell should be dividing. All right. So to sort of draw out this attribute of cellular identity, I want to compare two different cell types in an adult human. All right. So your intestine contains tons of intestinal cells and it's a pretty intense environment. All right. There's digestion going on. There's a really aggressive pH. There's all these enzymes that break things down into simpler chemical constituents. It's a rough environment for cells. And so intestinal cells have evolved to turn over pretty frequently. They have their useful life, they die, and they're replaced by new intestinal cells. And so one part of the cellular identity for an intestinal cell tends to be to divide fairly often. And we can contrast that to neurons that oftentimes have to traverse pretty long distances in the body, individual cells. Uh, They have these sort of delicate and precise positioning and these elaborate connections forming these networks of your nervous system. Uh, For the most part, once those neurons are in place, they're there. They're not really turning over. They're not really being replaced by others. Um, Mm. And so that's just kind of an oversimplified example of the ways in which one important part of cellular identity is whether or not to divide. Some cells really want to divide all the time. Other cells don't. That's absolutely true. And in addition, that attribute of cellular identity can be regulated. Okay, It can be turned up to say we need to divide more, or it can be tuned down to say we need to divide less or not at all. So you're saying in an individual cell at an individual moment that might change. Exactly. Yes. And so to illustrate that idea a little bit more, I want to introduce yet another system, yet another set of sort of hypothetical genes and and, uh, growth cues, and think now about cells in the lungs. All right. Just Mm -hmm. like every hypothetical cell type I've introduced thus far, part of those lung cells, cellular identity is how frequently to divide. And a lot of that cellular identity comes from the activity of proteins that facilitate or prevent cell division from happening. And typically, these regulatory proteins act in response to specific cues. So, for example, continuing to use the uh, major sort of biological context of our lives these days, let's imagine the lungs in someone who is recovering from a COVID infection. Some of that individual's lung cells suffered from being infected. Many of those individual cells probably died. And so now, in the aftermath of that infection, some of these neighboring lung cells recognize some sort of signal that says, oh, shit, we don't have enough lung cells near us. We need to divide. Mm. We need to fill that space. And so within an individual lung cell that comes to that conclusion, you know, doing this slightly dangerous hand-wavy anthropomorphizing of, of cells, that's, that individual lung cell thinks, I need to divide. I need to fill that space. I need to activate transcription of pro-cell division genes, which in turn will produce RNA, which can be translated into those pro-cell division proteins, which will in turn do their protein thing. They'll do the, the activity, the functional activity of the cell, and promote that lung cell to divide. And now there will be two lung cells instead of one. Okay, and that's going to happen over and over in lots of different lung cells 
all sort of neighboring each other. Um, and the sort of, you know, net takeaway here is that attribute of lung cell identity is regulatable. There were some external cues that were interpreted uh, by the cell, causing the cell to change its, you know, proper cellular identity. It said, okay, I wasn't really dividing so much. Now I am. Interesting. And, and so the one of the key takeaways here seems to be that that decision, so to speak, mm-hmm. um, happens inside the cell itself. It's responding to external cues, but the cell, you know, decides, again, mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. qualifications about anthropomorphization aside, to, based on the surrounding environment, I am going to be a cell that divides now. And then once it sees that space filled in, the cell then will decide, I am not going to be a cell that divides anymore. Absolutely. Yeah. And I just want to really, I I like the way you frame that. And I really want to emphasize the sort of way that that quote unquote decision manifests, the way that it is brought about is through the central dogma primarily. There's other stuff going on as well. Mm -hmm. Again, this is a simplification, but a major driver is interpreting those extracellular cues, causing transcriptional changes, which in turn cause translational changes, which in turn change the collection of proteins present in the cell to change the behavior, the identity, the function, the activity of that cell. Those cues will be different for some cells versus other cells. Absolutely. Like yep. Maybe those cues exist in a neuron, but they're extraordinarily hard to, like, or the the bar to actually sort of activate it or, or cause it to make this division decision nice um <laughs> is 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 totally different from whatever the bar would be for a skin cell or a, a an, an intestinal cell yeah i think that's a great point those cues are going to be different uh and the way they manifest are going to be different in those different cell types and to kind of continue this example that i introduced uh a, a, a few minutes ago uh, take that one step further, those cues are going to vary over time for an, a certain cell type. Okay, so let's mm. pick back up with that same lineage of lung cells in this, you know, COVID-recovered patient. At some point, the lung cell community in there is going to get back to its normal number and arrangement of lung cells. All right, so these cells have been receiving and acting on a collection of signals that say divide, divide, divide. And now there's going to be comparable, very complex mechanisms that recognize, okay, cool, we're kind of at a normal lung cell situation again. We don't really need to keep dividing, and in fact, it would be bad to keep dividing. So let's turn on the transcription of anti-cell division genes, which in turn Mm. will lead to the translation of anti-cell division proteins, which will in turn facilitate reducing the rate of cell division it almost sounds like there's a there's a sort of momentum involved here like the cell gets the cue to start dividing and unless acted upon um by an external force will continue dividing so it needs to be sort of there's a flag that goes up and says start dividing and it's going to keep dividing until it gets the red flag or or whatever that says okay now stop i think that's a great way of thinking about it i just want to make it a little bit more complicated and noisy and challenging. <laughs> okay. Okay. Sure. I think the way that the sort the, the end result of all of this signaling and signal interpretation and transcriptional changes and translational translational changes 
to an outside observer, some sort of like omniscient scientist with a microscope or something, it probably does ultimately boil down to like a green flag or a red flag. Inside the cell, there's a lot more going on than just raising the green flag or raising the red flag. All right. And in fact, I think probably a, a better analogy in terms of the mediation, the interpretation, the resolution of all of these different cues and pro-cell division factors and anti-cell division factors is something more like a tug-of-war, where Hmm. on one side of the tug-of-war, you have a really large, complex set of proteins that are promoting cell division, and on the other side of the tug-of-war, you have a large, complex set of factors that are resisting cell division. And they're all kind of tugging in their own direction, trying to tip the cell towards the direction that they want to go all right and the way that the cell sort of tips the scales in one direction or another is largely to do with regulating the central dogma regulate so if you you know the cell decides okay we got to tip the scales towards um cell division it doesn't just flip a switch and suddenly you know that you know green flag rate raises and the cell starts dividing it's this slightly temporally complex process of increasing the trans you know putting more players on the pro cell division team of the tug of war and maybe pulling onto the bench a few of the anti cell division players in the tug of war and ultimately that pro tug of pro cell division team starts to win the tug of war and the, that sort of you know a a more complicated analogy, but it does capture how delicate this regulation is and how much redundancy there is in it. Okay. Um, Would it almost make more sense to think of it in terms of like the cell is observing this tug of war and then um, basing its decision to divide or not divide at a given moment based on the outcome or based on the like sort of present state of that tug of war? Yeah, it's a it's a great it's a it's a great question, and I think it you know to some extent comes uh, you know touches on the insufficiencies of an analogy, and also an analogy that has so much anthropomorphization <laughs> of motivation and intent uh, baked into yeah. it. Um, so I think you know you, you you highlight some some important sort of nuances here. I think um, the the most important for this particular discussion is to keep in mind that. It isn't just a binary, simple, you know, Mm -hmm. clicking one button or another, raising one flag or another. It's a messy, complicated process with lots of different factors pulling in two different directions with regard to this one attribute of to divide or not. And and no one player is necessary or sufficient to move the rope all the way over to their side in, in this tug of war. Correct. No one player, for the most part, is so powerful, so important that it alone dictates the outcome of that tug of war. But there are some proteins that are more important than others. Just like in a tug of war, there are some bigger, stronger folks who are going to have more of uh, an influence on the outcome of the game than others. Yeah, you got to have your anchor. You got to, exactly. You got to have your anchor. Wow, it's been so long since I've actually played a game of tug of war. I forgot that such a person actually existed but yes you need your anchors and so now further developing this uh, sort of you know thinking about about cancer progression 
I want to introduce two of the anchors of this pro and anti-cell division tug of war, P53 and MYC. Okay, so these are both real proteins. They are real actual human proteins that are vitally important in uh, cancer progression. And I'm going to go through them one by one with similar sort of streamlined cartoon examples like I've done in the past. So first I want to start with P53. It has many functions in in a a lot of different sort of cellular contexts. One of the simplified but, but accurate roles is to prevent cell division. All right. And P53, like all proteins, is encoded in a gene, a sequence of DNA bases in a particular location in the genome. Okay, so Jeremy, I want you to walk me through what's likely to happen if we have a single DNA base in a single lung cell's P53 gene that gets mutated from a G to a C. Okay, so the first step of the process is that transcription phase. So you're going to end up with an RNA that gets some error in its transcription. Um, and then from there, that's going to result in the wrong amino acid getting mm-hmm. produced, um, mm-hmm. through that whole process. And that may well result in some problem in the three dimensional structure of the protein itself. Love it. And so I would think that that might result in a cell, which is much more likely to divide when it shouldn't be or maybe be unable to be stopped from dividing or, or something like that. Perfect. Does that sound right? Absolutely, absolutely love it. Yeah, so to so sort of you know bring back the tug-of-war analogy, P53 was one of the anchors. It was you know one of the strongest, most important players on the anti-cell division tug-of-war team, and the anchor has been lost. It, the anchor doesn't have the proper three-dimensional shape. It can't do its function. It's not involved in the tug-of-war anymore. And so now suddenly the pro cell division team in that tug of war has this really intense competitive advantage and it's going to be exactly as you pointed out you know you didn't say it's just going to start dividing that's an oversimplification um it's going to be much more likely to divide the the the, that tug of war is skewed largely in the direction of cell division cool so i you know introduced this this section of the discussion with two anchors the p53 is the anchor of the anti-cell division team, uh, the anchor of the pro-cell division team that I want to introduce is called MYC, M-Y-C. Um, just like P- P53, it has a lot of different related functions. MYC in particular is part of a super complex network of cofactors, has different functional forms, blah, blah, blah. Lots of really complicated stuff we're not going to go into any detail on to just cut to the chase. MYC promotes cell division. That's a simplified, uh, largely accurate version of what MYC does. And so now I want to consider a single DNA change in the MYC gene of a single lung cell. And in this particular DNA change, there's going to be a deletion of a single nucleotide. So again, the mutation is incredibly small. It is just one, one nucleotide, one DNA base lost in this very large gene in this enormous genome. And sort of, you know, cutting out a few steps uh, in the middle here, take my word for it, this particular deletion of a single DNA base produces an ultimate MYC protein that's shorter than it should be. Okay, let's say 25% shorter. And this shorter protein's core function of promoting cell division 
is intact, okay? It can still do its pro-cell division activity, but that 25% section of the protein that's been lost is normally bound by an inhibitor, some other protein that, under the right circumstances, inhibits mix pro-cell division activity. So it's okay. like it's like the brakes in the car. Exactly. Yes. This MYC protein normally has brakes. It can be slowed down. But by losing that 25% chunk, the brakes have been the brake lines have been cut. All right. And so now MYC is careening out of control. It is unable to be slowed down. It is unable to be inhibited. And kind of in many ways, you know, like the converse of what we saw in, in the loss of the P53 protein. Um, we're going to have a highly active, unregulatable MYC protein, okay? And in as a result of this, unlike the P53 example, where the anchor of the anti-cell division team is lost, in this case, the anchor of the pro-cell division team is basically on steroids, okay? Mm. MYC has gotten even stronger. MYC never gets to take a break. MYC is just, you know, getting fed on the rope, just hanging out all the time, pulling really, really, really hard, the net effect is going to be the same, okay? Whether we lost P53 or increase the activity, the potency, the longevity of MYC, the pro-cell division team is going to win out in this particular tug of war. So you can, so the idea is that you can have this uncontrolled cell growth arrive either by hampering the the don't divide team or amping up the do divide team exactly those are two of the major mechanisms of getting cancerous growth and you're absolutely right that uncontrolled cell growth that either you know amplification and failure to turn off a pro divide signal or the loss of a normal sort of don't divide signal both lead to the same uncontrolled, unchecked cell growth, and that is a primary hallmark of cancer. Why aren't we worried about it going the other direction? Presumably, you know, the other way, you'd, you'd have a cell that that uh, should be dividing and, and doesn't, That which sounds sounds bad as well. Why Why is that less of a concern for us? It's a great question. I think the short version is if we take that hypothetical you just uh, described there one step further, the next step is basically nothing. The cell can't divide. It doesn't divide, and it either hangs out not dividing or it dies, and that's the end of the story. Cool. Okay, so to sort of summarize what we've talked about uh, in this section of the conversation, there's two major paths to this uncontrolled cell growth that we identify as cancer. One is that loss of a don't divide signal. And like like we saw uh, in the loss of P53 activity, and then there's this increased activity of a yes, do divide signal, like we saw in the version of MYC that cannot be inhibited. And to introduce a little bit of terminology that, that some people may be familiar with, um, tumor suppressors are genes like P53, that normally prevent cell division, okay? And we call them tumor suppressors because when they are not mutated, when they're normally doing their normal activity, they suppress the formation of tumors. Their activity prevents uncontrolled cell division and thus protects us from cancer. And we're talking about a gene that's that's normally present in a healthy cell here, not a drug or, or therapeutic or something like that. Exactly. Another 
category that genes might fall into is oncogenes or sometimes called proto-oncogenes. And these are genes that normally promote cell division, like MYC, and it's their increased activity that, that causes cancer, just like in that mm. MYC example that I talked through, okay? And really just want to highlight really, really clearly, because I think it's a really confusing thing and a little slightly counterintuitive thing that a lot of people have trouble with. Both These are just ways to categorize normal, healthy genes in the human genome. Like mm. I said, and I think your question was a good one to highlight this, everyone has P53, Everyone mm-hmm. has MYC. These are normal, healthy genes that have evolved to perform a particular function. They are particularly on our radar, and we have a, a vocabulary to describe them through the lens of cancer because we've largely learned about them when, uh, due to situations when they go wrong, when they are mutated in specific ways to either cause the loss of tumor suppressor activity or the increased activity of proto-oncogenes. And that's sort of how we learn about their cellular biological function. We might not be particularly concerned with or even know about these genes if not for cancer. Absolutely. And, and historically, over time, a lot of the things that we've learned about in biology, the things we learn about first are things we learn about because they go wrong in a way that impacts human health. And that's mm. absolutely true. You know, there's a zillion papers about P53 and MYC because they're really important for human health because of what happens when they go wrong. We don't really care about the gene that causes you to lay eggs occasionally because it's not nearly as big of an issue as lung cancer or something like that. Exactly, exactly. It's hard to get NIH funding for uh, for an occasional egg-laying phenotype. Uh, we don't really care about the gene uh, that resulted in me growing a tail yes, um, exactly. two years ago uh, <laughs> because... Yeah, most people find it a little appealing. <laughs> All right. <laughs> okay. So, at this point, I think we have a pretty good understanding of how disruption or misregulation of this really important piece of cellular identity uh, can drive cancer progression. Mm-hmm. And I just want to round out our conversation with a couple notes and a little commentary. So everything we've talked about in this whole podcast, you know, as I've gone to great lengths to qualify because I qualify everything. Everything's way more complicated and multifaceted than what we've talked about. Um, I identified a small number of specific mutations, specific changes to the underlying DNA sequence of genes. Mm -hmm. There's a huge diversity of types of mutations that can cause cancer or other cellular and organismal problems. Okay, You can have the single base pair changes or deletions or insertions, kind of like what we've already talked about. There can be larger scale insertions of de- or deletions of, hmm. of like a handful or a few dozen or a few hundred DNA bases all at once arriving or being removed from a chunk of DNA. You can have these enormous translocations where like a whole arm of a chromosome with hundreds or thousands or even millions of base pairs of DNA can just kind of get swapped for another arm of another chromosome. Um, don't want to get too into the weeds of the uh, the mechanisms of these different types of mutations. They're very diverse. There can be, you know, we talked about a piece of DNA getting hit by a photon of light. There's chemical carcinogens. Obviously, you know, things like smoking and, and, and things like that can can flood your body with, with carcinogens that are carcinogens because they disrupt the DNA sequence of the genome. Um 
there's some processes that happen naturally in the cell, and when they're perfectly regulated, everything's hunky-dory. But if something goes slightly wrong with, say, repairing a little bit of DNA damage, that can cause some of these mutations. So there's a lot of different ways, mechanisms, and consequences um, of of these different types of mutations um, that all can potentially have relevance for cancer progression. Does that have something to do with why there are so many different possible sources of cancer like absolutely yep hpv to radiation to uh drinking a, a mercury or you know some something like that like these are all carcinogenic for likely very very different reasons and and fundamentally by very different mechanisms levels and scales of of damage that they might cause to a strand of dna Absolutely. Yes. And really just to, you know, drive the major theme of today home, the way that all of those super diverse mechanisms of cancer progression, of, of carcinogenicity, um, the way that they all sort of funnel down to the same core mechanism is what we've talked about today. Ultimately, there's some sort of combination of changes to the genomic sequence, the sequence of DNA bases comprising an individual cell's genome that caused this tug of war to be tipped in favor of uncontrolled cell division. That's mm. sort of the common theme linking all of these diverse cancer types. And that itself may be either through promotion of division or through suppression of non-division. Yes, I really like the way you, you frame that, and that's another point I really want to make here you really don't have single mutations causing cancer. It's really an accumulation of mutations, and it doesn't need to be just an accumulation of pro-cell division mutations or an accumulation of loss of anti-cell division mutations. It could be uh, you know, any combination thereof, as long as the net effect of those mutations is to irrevocably tip the scales of that uh, tug of war, increasingly mixing metaphors here. Um, as as long as that tug of war is irrevocably won by one side in one cell, at some point, that's when you get cancer progression. These are very specific levers that have to be acted on. It sounds like there's probably all sorts of ways that a cell can get damaged, fucked up, whatnot. That either miss these levers or mangle the cell in some other way that has nothing to do with its uh, division or non-division or sort of neatly mangle both sides of that equation and just sort of result in a in a cell that's not doing what it should be but will ultimately die and get reabsorbed or flushed out of your body and, and not be a problem. Yeah, I think that's all totally correct. And I think it's, <clears throat> you know, re related to this this final point I want to make, which is to connect everything we've been talking about today back to the major theme of these this episode arc we've been working on. Um, there are cell type specific patterns of mutations that confer cellular identity and that drive cancer. Okay, so there are specific genes that tend to be mutated in specific types of lung cancers, which are different from the specific genes that tend to be mutated in prostate cancers, which are different than the specific genes mutated in liver cancers, and so on and so forth. So to, to kind of take one specific example, there is a gene called RB. RB stands for retinoblastoma. 
We only really know about this gene, or at least we first discovered this gene, because it is mutated in an incredibly high percentage of retinoblastoma cancers. These are cancers of the retina. This is a a gene that's really important. Again, under normal circumstances, the RB gene has a normal healthy function in the retina. When it goes wrong, when it's mutated in, in a particular way, it drives cancer progression in the retina. There are RB mutations identified in lots of other cancer types as well, but not with such high frequency. I I forget the exact numbers, but a really high percentage of retinoblastomas have this specific mutation, Mm. okay? And the sort of broader conceptual takeaway there is there's this intimate connection, you know, as I've been saying this, this this whole time, between the particular sort of combination of between the specific transcriptional profile uh, of a cell type and its cellular identity. There's also a connection between that transcriptional profile and the susceptibility of a particular cell type Mm. to cancer. Okay, so these are really intimately connected ideas in in a variety of different ways. So in in the retina, presumably, it sounds like what you're saying is that, that RB is one of these anchors in the retina might not be in an esophageal cell or exactly somewhere else throughout the body. Um, exactly right. And that's sort of that's sort of part of the cell's identity. Is that why um some cancers uh tend to tend to seem to be more common than others um regardless of exogenous factors um like some cells may have one of these anchors, which for whatever reason is more susceptible to uh, mutation than others. Honestly, I'm not anywhere close to an expert on on the specifics there, but overall exactly what you're saying is correct. And there's a ton of effort to characterize those cell type specific patterns of mutations that give rise to cancer to attempt to find patterns in those uh, in those combinations of mutations and in so doing inform either cancer prevention or cancer treatment. So to summarize what we've talked about today, an intrinsic part of a cell's identity is this really specific and vitally important attribute of how much to divide in response to which environmental and signaling cues. If that vital aspect of cellular identity is lost, in particular due to the loss of anti-cell division cues or due to the increased activity of pro-cell division cues, that drives cancer progression. Okay, so there's this intimate connection between the complex sort of transcriptional profile of an individual cell type that drives its particular cellular identity in a million different ways, and if that particular dimension of cellular identity, of how much to divide, if that part of cellular identity is lost in the right way, that drives cancer progression. And that's where we end this chapter. So to recap, we began by going over the hard drive of the cell, the DNA, where all the instructions for all the parts that make up every bit of your living tissue is stored. We talked about how that information is organized into bundles called chromosomes and how those chromosomes can be further broken down into discrete sections called genes, which themselves come in ever so slightly different variants called alleles, and how those tiny little differences are what add up to give you your hair color, height, and so forth. 
Next, we delved into what is known as the central dogma, the mechanism that allows the cell to access the instructions stored within your DNA and from those blueprints construct the machinery it needs to function. We talked about how the cell copies or transcribes a section of DNA into a similar molecule called RNA, keeping that information intact but putting it in a more easily accessible form, like writing down something someone has spoken. From there, the information stored in the RNA gets translated. Cellular machinery reads its way down the RNA, chaining together small little molecules called amino acids as it goes into a long polymer, which then folds itself into a gigantic, complex, and carefully arranged thing called a protein, which can then go off and join together with other proteins in the fantastical dance that makes your cells function in the specific ways that they do. In episode three, we delved a little deeper and for the first time really struck at the heart of the question we're trying to answer here. What gives rise to cellular identity? If each cell in your body contains the same genome, then how is it possible for them all to behave so differently? How do the cells in your retina and the cells in your stomach do such different things using the same information? The answer was gene expression. Through a series of complex interactions, each cell is able to select which portions of the genome it wants to transcribe and how often. Sometimes it does this in response to signals that come from outside the cell, as in when dividing to repair a wound, and sometimes it does this as part of more routine behavior. We were also careful to note that these behaviors are typically the result of a large summation of different genes expressing themselves. A cell will not divide because one gene has been switched on, but because a large number of different genes have pushed and pulled it in that direction, like a game of tug of war. Finally, we took a look at what can happen when all this goes wrong. We looked at how under certain conditions, the information that gets stored in your genome can become damaged, giving rise to a cell with an identity that isn't quite right, and how if that happens in just the right way, it might give rise to a cell whose identity tells it to divide much more often than it should. This is cancer, and while that's not the happiest note to end on, one of the incredible things you should take away from all this is how fantastical it is that any of this is able to function in the first place at all. You are made up of tens of trillions of cells. If each one were the size of a grain of sand, you could fill a 747 cargo plane to the rafters. You could build a cube 40 feet on a side, and each one of those cells at their normal size contains two meters of DNA carefully, carefully packed up inside. Right now, at tens of trillions of places throughout your body, that DNA is being carefully scanned, read, and translated into new pieces of cellular machinery. That is an exquisitely delicate process to pull off even once, but every single one of those cells had to go through this same process to get there in the first place, and same with the cells that came before them, and the cells that came before them, and so on, in an unfathomable multiplication of an unfathomable multiplication. Look at your hand. Wiggle your fingers. Take a breath in and let it out. 
Think about what that took. <laughs>